you understand why I chose the title for this? Jonah, the reluctant evangelist. We'll help to open the Bible because we're going to look at the story in more detail. Page 927, there are a few Bibles. It will help to turn to a Bible somewhere. If you've got one or just ask someone to pass one to you. Now, to understand what this book is all about, you need to understand Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh. So let me begin by telling you a little bit about Nineveh, which will, which will probably push you in completely the wrong direction. But just stay with me a moment. Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient empire, well it wasn't ancient then, but it is now, of Assyria. Rose to prominence around about the 8th century BC, before Christ. It's located in what is now northern Iraq. It's described in Jonah 3 verse 3 as a very large city. It took Jonah three days to walk the length of the city or the breadth. We're not exactly sure which way he went. Its population is given as more than 120,000 people, which for that day is a real mega city. <coughs> Reconstructions of Nineveh give us some idea of its magnificence. And while Assyria's capital was large, its empire was enormous and spreading by the day. From its origins east of the river Tigris, steamrolling westward by this fantastic army it had, one of the first great armies of its day. Superbly equipped with the world's first siege machines, manipulated by an efficient corps of engineers. I still remember at school, they probably don't teach you this in English lit these days, but I remember at school reading Lord Byron's great uh, poem, The Death of Sennacherib, and it begins, you, you never forget it once you've learnt it at school. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. Gives you some idea of the magnificence of, of the story. However, as one writer put it, psychological terror was Assyria's most effective weapon. It was ruthlessly applied with corpses impaled on stakes, severed heads stacked in heaps, and captives skinned alive. We know this from the written records of the day. You'll be glad there aren't any pictures I can put on the screen. Here's one of their emperors, Asher Nasir Paul II. This is what he says, I built a pillar over against his city gate, and I slayed all the chief men who had revolted and covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Others I bound to stakes around about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I slayed and I spread their skins upon the walls. I cut off the limbs of the royal officers who had rebelled. Now, not surprisingly then, the name of Syria struck terror into the hearts and minds of every non-Assyrian in the ancient world. For these invaders had a total disregard for human life. There was no Geneva Convention in that day. There was no Commission for Human Rights. No, the Assyrians were a law unto themselves. Or so they thought. But they were wrong. God 
saw what was happening. And he decided to put a stop to it. He decided to put a stop to them. But, in keeping with his compassionate character, he chose to issue a final warning to the Assyrians by sending one of his spokesmen to their capital city, Nineveh. And the man he chose to deliver this warning was our friend Jonah, a member of the nation of Israel, to whom and through whom God had chosen to reveal himself as the Lord, the Lord of all nations on earth. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, contrary to what some critics claim, Jonah was a real historical character. He had a real father. And he had a previous record as a prophet through whom the Lord had promised good news for the nation of Israel. You can find this in another book in the Bible called Two Kings, chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. Uh, there was a king named Amaziah who ruled the southern kingdom of Judah and in the north a king called Jeroboam ruled. And this places Jonah, not surprisingly, in the 8th century, somewhere around the middle he prophesied about the same time as another prophet we looked at a few weeks ago called Amos. And it was, of course, the period of the rise of Assyria. And right in the path of this fantastic army stood the little nation of Israel and its southern neighbour that had split off Judah with their capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem. So Jonah gets this new commission from the Lord and it's not such a good posting as his last one. He doesn't like it. And so as they say in the military, he goes AWOL, absent without leave. And he refuses his commission. Verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard. He sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He heads in exactly the opposite direction to Nineveh. No one is sure where Tarshish is. Uh, the translation read suggested southern Spain. It was actually, in those days, it was the kind of Shangri-La of the ancient world, you know, a mythical place where everything was wonderful and where the streets were paved with gold, you know? Jonah said, I fancy Tarshish rather than Nineveh. Hence our title, The Reluctant Evangelist. But what was the reason why he refused to go to Nineveh? Well, knowing what I've just told you about Nineveh and the Assyrians, and we know only a little of the horrors that Jonah and his fellow Israelites really knew about, we can imagine our reasons for not wanting to go to Nineveh. Who on earth would want to walk right into the lion's den and likely become a lion's dinner? Maybe Jonah was just afraid of the assignment. Or even if you weren't skinned alive, wouldn't it be really a bit of a waste of time? After all, the Assyrians had their own array of very impressive gods and goddesses. And they were mightily successful, it seemed, judging by the military success of their armies. Who would listen to a message of judgment given by an obscure Hebrew prophet from an obscure little nation 
purported to be coming from some God who couldn't even be represented like a proper God in the day in stone or in metal. Now we might speculate on such reasons for Jonah's reluctance and we would be completely wrong. But we only discover it's a wonderful written book it's the whole of the Bible you can read it again when you get home it's a fantastic story we only get the real reason why Jonah didn't want to go right at the end in the last chapter when Jonah finally gets back on track he arrives in Nineveh and he carries out his assignment much to our amazement though actually not to Jonah's the people of Nineveh heed his message of judgment and man and beast Repent in sackcloth and ashes. Quite sure how the cows and everybody did it, but the king said, this is what you're to do. The real reason for Jonah's reluctance was that the people of Nineveh repent. If you've got the Bible, chapter 3, verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh about this preacher, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, turn or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And the result is that the Lord relents. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And Jonah is very, very, very upset and very, very, very angry. Jonah was greatly displeased, chapter 4, and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love and God will relent from sending calamity now and only now do we come to the sting in the tail and discover why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place and what he said to the Lord before he headed off in the opposite direction to Tarshish the real reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was not because he was afraid of what the Assyrians might do to him but because he was afraid of what the Lord might do to the Assyrians Jonah was afraid that if he went and preached in Nineveh, the Assyrians might pay attention and repent, and the Lord might have compassion on them, withdraw his judgment from them, and his worst fears are confirmed. And Jonah is very upset. So upset that he prays and he makes a prayer request to the Lord. Verse 3, chapter 4. Now, O Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord doesn't answer him. Simply asks him a question. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah doesn't say anything. But he heads east of the city, makes himself a shelter, and he sits in his shade to wait and see what's going to happen to the city. Maybe after all, he hopes, the Lord will do what he said, and as Jonah prophesied, and will wipe out the city. Nothing so dramatic occurs. Instead, the Lord does act 
with an object lesson in mercy. The Lord provides a vine which grows up quickly and it provides a canopy, a shelter for Jonah from the blazing sun and Jonah is very grateful for it. But at dawn the next day, and notice the text, the word is used again and again, the Lord provides a vine, then the Lord provides a worm. See, God is in control of this story, although Jonah doesn't realise it, and sometimes in our lives we don't realise. You know that God controls worms? And the worm chews up the vine, and it withers. And Jonah loses the protection over his head, and then the Lord provides... You know the Lord is in control of the Met Office? The Lord provides a scorching east wind, which blazes down on Jonah's head so that he feels faint and once more he expresses his death wish verse 8, chapter 4 he wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live and the Lord repeats his question with an addition now notice what he says but God said to Jonah, verse 9 do you have a right to be angry about the vine and this time Jonah does have an answer I do, he says. I'm angry enough about this vine to die. But the Lord has the last word and the last unanswered question. Look at the final verses of the book. So the Lord said, You've been very concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well should I not be concerned about that great city so what are we meant to learn from the book of Jonah well there's a lot of things if you're interested in 1995 I preached 14 sermons on Jonah and in 2002 I preached 8 getting shorter it's wonderful you can listen to them on the internet or get copies from the tape library. But this evening I simply want to say there is one lesson we need to learn from this prophet and when we understand it, one response that we should make if we understand it properly. The lesson the book of Jonah teaches is to appreciate the extent of the Lord's love. To appreciate the extent of the Lord's love. And I simply want to spend the rest of this message focusing on this lesson and then very briefly, because it was so obvious in the end, applying our response to it. Many years ago, at the beginning of my pastoral ministry, which is a long time ago, I attended a talk given by a lady Christian psychiatrist. A highly respected older woman with extensive experience in helping people with problems and especially Christians who had problems. She said something I've never forgotten. What she said. Most of our problems stem from an inadequate understanding of the character of God. Most of our problems stem from an inadequate understanding of the character of God. Now you might expect this of people in general. Most surveys show, the last census in Britain I think showed that 70 something percent of people still believe in God. But the God that most people believe in is a God of our own making that we would like him to be. 
So no wonder it's a problem for people in general. But the problem is not removed if we rightly say, as many of us would hear this evening, that the only accurate picture of God is that which is revealed about himself and his dealings with people contained in this book, the Bible, which we call his word, and finally and completely, as we thought this morning, if you're here, through his son, Jesus Christ, who is described as the word. It is a problem, not just for people in general, but a problem for Bible believers in particular. I can never understand those people, and there are many, who accuse you, if you believe in the Bible, of what they call easy believism. Listen, easy believism is reading this book and cutting out all the bits that you don't like about God, that don't fit your idea of God. Wrestling with the God of this book is hard believism. For he is not a comfortable God that we can easily contain with our finite minds. Now, that doesn't mean that we give up in despair and go away and say, well, there's nothing we can know. Yes, there is a lot that we can know, but we have to wrestle with the God of the Bible, as Jonah did. We try to grasp what God has revealed of himself by the way he deals with people, people like Jonah, nations like Assyria. And our problems, I would suggest to you, arise when God doesn't deal with people and nations the way we would like him to. Let me say that again. Our problems arise when God doesn't deal with people and nations the way we would like him to or the way we think he should. And that was Jonah's problem. Jonah's problem was, wasn't that he didn't understand who God was. The people of Israel in general, let alone a prophet who stood in the Lord's presence, knew only too well who this God was. You see, the supreme revelation of God had been given to the nation of Israel of who the Lord is and was and is to come. The name that God revealed himself, very interesting name. No one knows how to pronounce it. Most people in the old days used to call it Jehovah or Yahweh. It's something to do with the, with the tense of the verb to be, the ever-present one. And this was communicated to the people of Israel through their great leader Moses who led them out of slavery from Egypt to the promised land. And even after the Israelites turned against the Lord and worshipped a golden calf of all things, the Lord did not give up on them. Instead he gave them a second chance and new stone tablets on which his law was written. And then we read in Exodus 34 that the Lord passed before Moses and he didn't just pass so that Moses said, ooh, he's like that, you know, a brilliant light. No, he said something about himself. It's what he said. These are very important verses, probably some of the most important verses in the Old Testament. This is what the Lord said about himself. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, centuries have gone by. And Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, he knows this. Why? Because it's been written down, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He knows that the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so no doubt he prays 
that the Lord will punish the Assyrians for they are guilty of heinous crimes. Jonah wants the Lord to exercise his judgment. But he also knows in the back of his mind, although he probably tries to suppress it at this point, that this same Lord is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. He knows that God's judgment is always preceded by his mercy. And while he wants the Lord to exercise his judgment on Nineveh, Jonah doesn't want the Lord to show his mercy to them. And so when the Lord says to him, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, this is why he refused his commission. Chapter 4, verse 2 again. He says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was at home when you called me? That's why I was quick to flee the opposite direction. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah knew his scriptures. He knew Exodus 34. He knew what the Lord was like. He knows that he's been sent to Nineveh, not just to proclaim God's judgment on them. Otherwise, he could have stayed at home and watched the city being destroyed on Sky News. Or whatever they had in those days. No, he knows that the Lord's commission, his commission to preach God's judgment, 40 days more and Nineveh will be destroyed, must mean that the Ninevites have 40 days of grace in which to change their ways and repent. And rather than give them this opportunity, slim though the chance of their repentance might seem, Jonah runs away from the Lord. Now a secondary question. Why does the Lord take so much trouble organising storms and whales to get Jonah back on track and back into Nineveh? Why doesn't the Lord simply call a substitute prophet off the bench to do the job instead? The main reason, and there are others, is to teach Jonah a lesson about the extent of his compassion. It's voiced in the final question of the book. Should I not be concerned about this great city? And up to now, Jonah's answer is, No, you shouldn't! In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Jonah, Rosemary Nixon writes, While God's sympathy with sinful humanity is stressed in this story, Jonah shows himself to be hard-hearted and lacking in compassion or mercy. And by means of these visual aids that we looked at, the Lord points out the incongruity of Jonah's position. He's more concerned about a one-day-old vine, the Lord says, than more than 120,000 people, and brackets, many cattle. So Jonah persists with, the Lord persists with Jonah to teach him a lesson about the extent of his compassion. One that presumably he learned because he's left as a record of what actually happened in this book. A very honest record of himself. But, and I'm coming to the application, and if it's not hitting you between the eyes now, then you're definitely asleep. All right, stay with me, but it's, it's obvious, isn't it? God has preserved this book this record 
to challenge us about our understanding of the Lord's compassion. Not just to teach Jonah a lesson, to teach us a lesson about the extent of his compassion. And the question this evening is, do we have a limited view of the Lord's love and his compassion and the extent of it? Let me summarise it. The Lord's compassion extends to people on earth from all nations, all cultures, all religions, all lifestyles, even the enemies of his people. I'll say it again. The Lord's compassion extends to people from all nations, all cultures, all religions, all lifestyles, even the enemies of his people. And we who have the full revelation of God's character in his son Jesus have far less excuse for failing to understand this principle. The extent of the Lord's compassion. The full extent of the Lord's love. Best known verse in the Bible. What's it about? To the world. God so loved those nice folk in Charlotte Chapel. People like them. No. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not only do we have the full revelation of God's character to the world, but if you are a Christian, you have the amazing personal experience of God's love for you, for us as a church. Here's Paul's words right into the Romans. You see, he says, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man. Someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And never forget it. as we evangelicals nod our heads in agreement let me challenge you with a personal with a couple of direct illustrations which may ruffle a few feathers let me ask you a question is the Lord concerned about Muslims does it extend to people who are Muslims does it even extend the extent of Muslims who we call terrorists who blow up people and kill them and try to destroy our way of life. In a day when in the West nearly all Muslims are treated with suspicion and are demonized, does God's love extend to all Muslims? But you say, what about those who kill Christians? I simply remind you of what the people of Nineveh and Assyria were like. And yet the Lord did not leave them to their just deserts, but he sent a prophet to warn them and give them a chance to change their ways. I read a recent interview, and a very interesting interview with a remarkable man, many of you have heard of him, Brother Andrew. He'd served the Lord as a Dutchman, he served the Lord for 50 years. Mostly in the old days he used to take Bibles into communist countries and support the Christians who were persecuted. He's still doing that work. And in the interview he said, he now has a broader focus. 
which encompasses those living in Muslim countries. He said he believes the Muslim world will, I believe, I quote, become the major source of persecution for Christians. However, he then adds this, but we must learn how to spell Islam as I sincerely love all Muslims. And we must start by communicating with them and not be so afraid and threatened. Does God's love extend to Muslims? Let me give you a second illustration. Is the Lord concerned about gays? People who are not only gay in orientation but also in practice. You say, what about their behaviour? And I simply say to you, I could not tell you from Charlotte Chapel the kind of sexual deviations the Assyrians got up to and legitimised it in the name of their religion. God sent the prophet to their capital city to warn them to change their ways and to offer them mercy. Christians are often accused of homophobia. But the main way we show homophobia to people who are gay and I know plenty of them, believe me, and I speak to them. And I think any of them would say, I've been as friendly to them as I can possibly have been helpful. Put it in the bulletin, but I could speak to people, whatever their background. But the main way we show homophobia is by heading for Tarshish and leaving Nineveh to its own devices. You understand what I'm saying? Do we really appreciate the extent of the Lord's compassion? That is the main lesson of the book of Jonah, which the Lord throws down this question. Should I not be concerned about? Now you fill in the gap. With any human being, especially human beings who have done something nasty to you, who you don't like, and who don't deserve anything from you, humanly speaking. You fill it in with any social grouping that you disapprove of. Fill it in with any nation, even if it's on the American list of axis of evil or whatever. And if God is concerned for such people, then so should we be. And if we appreciate the extent of the Lord's love, and now I come to the final conclusion, I'm getting there. Our response is to accept the Lord's commission, not to refuse it as Jonah did. You see, Jonah was told to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, to the Assyrians. The followers of Jesus have a much broader commission. They are told by their Lord and Saviour in his final words, in his final mandate, which we call the Great Commission. This is what Jesus said. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, literally in Greek, ethnois, ethnic groupings, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 8, 28, 18 to 20. It is the Great Commission, friends. It is not the Great Suggestion. And it has not yet been rescinded because the end of the age that Jesus talked about has not yet come. When it comes, that'll be the end. It is the message of God's love for those who believe in His Son. John 3.16, you know John 3.17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
therefore, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's God's intention. But, Jesus went on to say, this is a message of judgment for those who refuse, who reject his son. So the next verse, these are the words of Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So, if you are here this evening and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you have not believed in him, you stand under God's judgment. You are like the people in Nineveh waiting for D-Day, Doomsday. You are the man living or woman living on death row. But God loves you so much that he sent his son into the world to rescue you. And I simply say to you this evening, it's time to respond to God's love. You can come in here this evening as a condemned person. You can go out if you're a free man or woman. For whom the sun sets free, said Jesus, free indeed. But if you have responded to God's love in Christ, then you have an obligation to respond to the Great Commission. Especially if up till now in your life it's been the Great Omission. To go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, Jonah's message was a remarkable message. Eight words in English. That means five words in Hebrew. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Wow, that's not exactly catchy evangelistic theme, is it? And yet a whole city turned around and believed. Now, God does not promise us that. And what he demands of us is faithfulness. The challenge of the book of Jonah to the individual Christian and to the local church is to go and tell to be the people of God to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to warn people that they're living in the God's judgment so what is our response? well we've got two choices like Jonah had well we can refuse the challenge and head for Tarshish listen if you're a Christian you'll have proved this by now anyway but if you haven't Tarshish is an illusion always offers a lot sunny Spain nice beaches good fun don't need to come to church anymore do your own thing if you're a Christian in that position turn round before God sends a storm head in the right direction some of you may be already in Tarshish and you've proved like the prodigal that the far country is a bit of a waste of time never fulfills what it promises Our call is to go to Nineveh, that great city, our great city, whatever great city God might send us to. And the challenge of the book of Jonah is, will we accept the call? Will we be obedient to God's call to us as individuals and as a church? Let's just bow in prayer.